If you will join me in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, we will be looking this morning at verses 11 through 18 as we continue in our series through the letter to the Ephesians written by the Apostle Paul. The title of our sermon this morning is Brought Near, and our key words for our worshipers and training are Gentile, Peace, and Flesh. Now, a lot of us have probably been through at least one job interview in our lives, and they make us a bit uncomfortable, don't they? For most of us, and of course, there are exceptions. We can probably all think of people who are exceptions. Most of us don't like having to sit and talk about ourselves, elevating our gifts and talents, promoting ourselves in just every way possible, that's kind of an uncomfortable thing a lot of times. Now, that's not to say we don't think those things about ourselves, but especially if we are Christians, hopefully it's a little bit more difficult for us to say it out loud because we know what that sounds like. And if we're not careful, we end up taking everything that God has done for us and in us, and elevating it to a place where it sounds as if we've done it on our own. We developed those gifts. We made sure we had those talents. We gave ourselves all of those opportunities. Now, of course, we all know someone, maybe a few people, who are the me monster. And if you're familiar with my favorite comedian, Brian Regan, he says, beware the me monster. That's the person who is content to sit around all day and talk about themselves. Me, myself, and I, and me, and my. But if we're honest, all of us have a little bit of the me monster within us. We can look at other people. We can look at their particular sins. We can think of them. How can they do that? I'm glad I don't do that. Or we can see someone struggling to do something that comes more natural to us and wonder... How could they be so incompetent? It's a universal reality of the human heart. I think that's what all of my math teachers thought as I grew up. How is he so dumb? (laughs) But when God gives us gifts and talents and strengths, there's something in our self-righteousness and our self-serving hearts that takes those good gifts and elevates them to an absolute value and then looks at everyone else who doesn't have what you have and causes you to look down on them, causes you to despise them. And the good gift from God becomes a means of hostility, a basis for hostility. I mean, think of uh, the typical idea of what high school was probably like for most of us. I know what it was like for me. Over there were the jocks. Over there, those were the band kids, the theater kids, the choir kids. That's a weird group. And on, I can say that. I was part of that group. And on and on and on. There were various groups of people, very clearly defined by very strictly drawn lines, right? And and what were those lines based upon? the gifts that were given to them. 
And so every group had its stereotypes and its assumptions that, they were, that had placed on them by others. And every group uses what they're gifted at to judge and separate themselves from others. And it's just this sort of intense look at what life is really like in the world outside the laws of the school. Even though we have to find ways eventually to work and live together outside of those boundaries that we've drawn. Now, don't think that because we're adults, we've all arrived at a better place. We just have become a bit more sophisticated in how we hide it and how we define it. In our own self-righteous thinking and in our judgments of others, we are most content in our sinful hearts to be segregators and to isolate ourselves alongside only those who we most closely align with. But the fact is that our hostilities are most often based on a sense of superiority because of something that God himself has actually done for us, not because of anything that we have done in and of ourselves. If we truly understand who and what we are as human beings in a fallen world, humility should take over our every thought our every accomplishment, our every deed, and, and our hearts and our minds should continually be fixed on Christ and his glory. And in the text we're looking at this morning, we're going to be looking at this hostility that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. And Paul is going to remind us what Christ has done to destroy those hostilities, to bring all of God's people together as one church, as one family, as one people of God. And herein begins a section of the book of Ephesians that focuses very prominently on the teaching as it relates to the local church and the Bible and the relationship of God's people to one another as the body of Christ. So we're going to look specifically at verses 11 through 18 in chapter 2. We're going to look at our first observation this morning beginning in verse 11 and 12. Therefore... Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in your world. Now the first thing for us to see this morning is that we are to remember. Apart from Christ's reconciling work, we would be without God and without hope. Now our tendency is to want to come to the end of verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, where Paul has laid out this sort of beautiful picture of what God has done in our salvation and skip over what he has written in verses 11 through 12 and jump to verse 13. Remember, Paul outline for us that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were following after the world and the flesh and the devil. We were without hope. But God, being rich in mercy with the great love with which he loved us, saved us in Christ Jesus by grace through faith apart from works of the law. And in saving us, God has made us his workmanship. He has set us on course to do all of the good works that he has prepared for us beforehand that we might walk in them. That was verses 1 through 10. And we might just want to jump over 11 and 12 
and get to 13 because he continues on with the good news and the encouraging news. And so Paul says twice in verses 11 and 12, hold on, remember, remember. Now this isn't a suggestion. It isn't written to sort of remind us of something, but you don't have to do this. This is actually the very first command we read in all of the book of Ephesians. This is the first time anything is written as an imperative. Remember. Remember what? What does Paul exhort us to remember? Remember that you were helpless. Remember that before Christ traded your sin for his righteousness through his death on the cross, you were separated from Christ, you were alienated from the people of God, you were strangers to the covenants of promise, you had no hope, you were without God in this world. That was your condition. Very encouraging, right? Thank you, Paul. Can you imagine inviting him to your party? Remember that one time you were a child of Satan? (laughs) You wanted nothing to do with God? But that's what he's telling us, right? Remember that. He's saying, don't forget it. Remember, why? Because it will be of tremendous spiritual good to you to remember. Remembering your position, your place apart from Christ will keep you from boasting in your redeemed newness. Remembering your condition apart from Christ will will work in you to be all the more thankful for your forgiveness. It will make you love Christ more intensely because you are mindful of what you were versus what you are now. You will believe more and more without any doubt that the greatest thing in all the world is to be saved by Jesus Christ. And remembering your condition apart from Christ will help you to exalt in the righteousness of Christ and who is the great author and finisher of our faith, the giver and sustainer of our salvation and of our hope. Remembering our condition apart from Christ will give us greater patience with those who themselves are apart from Christ. And with those who, like you and I, are being sanctified and growing in their faith day by day, not having yet arrived at the day of glorification. Now let's look more specifically at what Paul points out here. In verse 11, and the first part of verse 12, he writes this. Remember that at one time, in other words, before you were a Christian, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Okay, this takes maybe a bit of explanation. Paul is making a distinction here between the Jews and the Gentiles. So let me try to rephrase this statement in a way that's maybe a bit more clear to understand. He's saying, remember, you uncircumcised Gentiles are not the circumcised Jews. The Ephesians were Gentiles, and the Jews looked down on them as a result. The Jews would call the Gentiles dogs, or just the very name Gentile was sort of a, um, a slight toward them. You can imagine them saying Gentile and turning their head and spitting when they say it. It's the jocks talking about the nerds, or whatever group you were in and the group you looked down on. You just had to say the name, and everyone kind of knew where this was going. 
Everyone who was not a Jew was called then by them, by the Jews, they called them the uncircumcision. That's what Paul is referring to in verse 11. Now the Jews called themselves the circumcision to set themselves apart from everyone else. They had the physical covenant sign of circumcision on each of their boys or their men to identify them as part of the nation of Israel. And for the Jews, that carried all sorts of connotations. There was this strong nationalistic pride. They were, uh, essentially, they were very racist toward their neighbors. They had an attitude of superiority about them because they knew that God had been doing something special in and through them all throughout history. However, they did not clearly understand exactly what God was doing or how God intended to work all of it out. And so instead of being humble and thankful, they were proud and boastful. They were insisting that they were better and more worthy than everyone else. And so the idea that they were the circumcision was not just about them being Jews and the uncircumcised being Gentiles. It was more significant. It was a matter of pride and self-worth and self-exaltation and feelings of superiority for them. The very thing that God gave to the Jewish people as a gift, his law, his word, his blessings, his covenant, and all of this, through all of this, they were supposed to be a holy, godly nation to show other nations of the world what godliness looked like. They actually turned and used all of that as a weapon. Over and over again, we read in our Bible from the founding of the nation of Israel forward, they were intended by God to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to live according to the law. They were supposed to be able to show the nations what godliness looks like. Their whole purpose in existing was to be a blessing. But instead, that blessing was used as a basis for hostility. So the Jews despised the Gentiles because they didn't have what the Jews had. And the Gentiles despised the Jews because the Jews despised them. So Paul is emphasizing this hostility because he wants to point out that while the Jews are completely and totally wrong for how they despise the Gentiles, the fact of the matter is that Gentiles really do have absolutely nothing to do with the one true and living God. He reminds them in verse 12, again, remember you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. God revealed himself in very specific ways to a nation and you were not part of that nation. He gave them his word. He spoke at various times and in different ways, but you were not members of that. You were not a part of his people. And he tells them they were strangers to the covenants of promise. The ordinances God gave, the worship principles, dwelling with God, knowing and resting and delighting in his promises, receiving all of the benefits of having God on their side. None of that was their hope. And the hope of a Messiah that would come and rescue them from death was not theirs either. They didn't know hope. They didn't know about grace. They didn't know about a redeemer. And God made various covenants with Israel, and those covenants were filled with promises, and really the Gentiles didn't even know that God had made any promises. They were outsiders. And so God's word to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob were not for them. 
Now, it's not that the Gentiles were atheists. They had plenty of gods they worshipped. It was just that they worshipped the wrong god. And so they were at enmity with the one true and living God. They were at enmity between, uh, between them and the Jews. And there was enmity even among their own people. And as a result, Paul tells us in verse 12, they were left with no hope. Aren't those profoundly empty words? But what better way is there to describe our lives apart from Christ? Our unconverted years, they are years that we live with no hope. Friend, if you're not a Christian, this is what Paul is saying to you by the Spirit of God. Without Christ, if you are not trusting in, walking with, and in him, you are without hope. You have no hope. You may be seeking hope in the things of the world, but none of them will provide hope. You will not find assurance, you will not find rest, you will not find lasting joy because you are without the hope of Christ and the assurance of the gospel promise. Will you turn to Christ, trusting and loving him, living in him, all to the praise of his glorious grace? Apart from Christ, you are living at enmity with God, and where there is enmity with God, there is no hope, there is no peace. Now, what is, what is the major headline of the news typically involving? Some kind of hostility, right? War, division, verbal attacks, threats. You name it, it's everywhere, it's unavoidable. The world dwells without hope because the world dwells in enmity, hostility. Because Jesus Christ is the only means of true peace. So, our nations will work and strive to create battle plans and will work on winning the hearts and minds of foreign nations. But Jesus is far greater and only Jesus can bring the true and lasting peace that is better than every military strategy that can ever be devised. And you know why? Because you know your own heart. You know the wickedness that exists in the human heart apart from Christ. And if you don't, you're not reading your Bible and you're not paying attention. Apart from Christ, we really do want to default to this idea that man is basically good. Or that there are a lot of people who can say they aren't Christians. But you know, they're really caring. They're really thoughtful. They're really doing good things. They vote the right way. They say the Pledge of Allegiance and they feed the children. So let's not think so badly about people, huh? But if that's how you think, the Bible is vastly more pessimistic than you are. And you need a biblical dose of pessimism about the world you live in and about the people you live around. And so the Christian response to that is to say, remember, remember what you really are apart from Christ. And then we can realize, and this is important right now, and I hope you remember this, there is nothing we can do apart from Christ that's going to fix that problem. No political endeavor is going to clean this up. Having the right person in office ultimately is not going to fix the problem. You can't legislate reconciliation with God and man. 
It's not possible. It was Jesus who came into the world to deal with sinful divisions among men, not political candidates. And without Christ, there really is no hope for reconciliation. The fruit of not being reconciled to God is to not be reconciled with one another. It happens in our communities. It happens on the national stage. It happens across international borders. And sadly and often, it happens in the church. An example of this, in the 17th century, there was a pastor theologian by the name of Ralph Erskine. Now, Erskine wrote many wonderful, useful works for the church to include poems and hymns and theological treatises that were very helpful and warm and pastoral. Well, Erskine was a part of the Scottish uh, Presbyterians, and during his lifetime, there was a major debate in his denomination about whether or not public officials in Scotland had to adhere to Christianity in order to be elected to political office. And as a result of this, Ralph Erskine had a major falling out with his very own son, John Erskine, because they were on opposite sides of this issue. Ralph did not believe it was right to require conversion for someone to be in public office, while John thought that it was. John's side of the debate won the day, and Ralph and others like him were excommunicated from their denomination. In Ralph Erskine's diary, he writes that one of the most painful things in his life was sitting in a debate on this issue and looking across the aisle and seeing his son. And it was later recalled that as Ralph lay on his deathbed, he cried out for John to come and see him, but John refused to be reconciled to him, his very own son. Now, as brothers and sisters... Sadly, that kind of thing happens all the time. In the one place among the very people that this should never happen. There are just some really silly things that people get upset about and leave churches over and start new churches for because they're never reconciling with those they've divided with. Preferences about buildings and programs and music and what we wear and on and on and on. And so instead of putting on display the beauty of what God has done in reconciling us to God in Christ by being reconciled to one another, we run in the opposite direction because we don't want to be patient and loving toward one another, taking the time and the effort that it goes into loving and being unified together. But Paul's telling us, remember what you were. Why? So you don't go back to it. So you don't move forward in humility and thankfulness and then give it all up and go back to pride and reckless division. And so Paul is telling us, remember what you were and remind yourself that that's what everyone is. And when God has redeemed you and has redeemed others, it takes time. It takes time and you must be humble and you must be patient and you must remain faithful and loving along the way because that is your brother, that is your sister. And you might divide from them here and now, but you have to live with them forever and ever. So get it right here and now. And so Paul goes on to write, our second observation this morning, that the church is one body brought near by the blood of Christ. Look at verse 13. 
He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now remember, back in verse 4, we highlighted the significance of those two words, but God. And here we have the same thing again. Paul tells us, you were this way. Remember that. Don't forget that. But now. So full of hope, but now. But now you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were far off. You were in a foreign land. You were like the prodigal son. You were living life for yourself, content to eat the slop of the pigs that you were feeding, cut off from God, but you were drawn near. And notice how he says it in verse 13. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You didn't go looking for him. He came after you. He drew you near, and he shed his blood to bring us near. And when he does this, he clothes you in the finest garments and he puts the ring on your finger and he has the fatted calf slaughtered that you might feast with friends and family as the father rejoices that his son or his daughter has come home. That's you if you're a Christian. Do you think like that? Is that how you see yourself before God? I hope so. Because that's how God sees you. He rejoices in you being with him. Have you ever thought about these words when we sing, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Those are beautiful words. I had no right, I had no claim to redemption. It was not my divine right. It was not anything I deserved. It was all by divine grace. It is all of divine mercy. It is all unmerited. It is all undeserved mercy action from God toward us. And Paul goes on to say that, yes, in fact, you were brought near by the blood of Christ, but it is Christ himself who is your peace. You see that in verse 14? Our peace is a person. Our peace is Jesus himself, and he is our peace between God and our sinful souls. There's a great section in John Bunyan's autobiographical work called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, and he wrote this. Some of you saw, I had posted this on social media this week. He said this, I remember that one day, As I was traveling into the country and musing on the wickedness and blasphemy of my heart and considering of the enmity that was in me to God, that scripture came in my mind. He hath made peace through the blood of his cross, by which I was made to see both again and again and again that day that God and my soul were friends by this blood. Yea, I saw that the justice of God and my sinful soul could embrace and kiss each other through this blood. This was a good day to me. I hope I shall not forget it. You see what he's doing? He's remembering who he was. 
He's being reminded of what God has done in the blood of Christ, and he's finding peace in the person of Christ. And the result, I love how he says this. It was a good day for me. (laughs) What happened? Verse 14, it broke down the wall of hostility. Hostility between God and man, hostility between man and man. It was broken down, and he saw that. He saw who he was, he saw now who he is, and he delighted and rejoiced in that hostility being taken down. Now, some scholars believe Paul is actually referring to something called the Sorig inscription. That would have been inscribed on the wall. That partition that divided out the Jewish-only area in the temple in Jerusalem from what's called the court of the Gentiles, warning the Gentiles that if they entered into that enclosed area, that they would die. And symbolic in that division is the Gentiles being far off from God because they could not enter into the place where he was to be worshipped. But also symbolic in that division is the Gentiles being far off from the Jews. Now, sadly, the Jews didn't see this as a reason to show compassion and mercy and to tell the Gentiles of the great God that they served. Instead, it was a means of boasting. And so in that regard, when the hostility was broken down, where the dividing wall came down, the Gentiles could see that they, in fact, were greater beneficiaries of the blood of Christ Because the Jews thought that they deserved what God had done and were by nature of being Jewish reconciled to God in their minds. That's not reality, but that's what they believed. But Gentiles understood. They had no question as to what their place was. And you and I are in the same boat. We have no claim and we don't deserve it. And so God has broken down that barrier. God has brought an end to our hostilities And it should bring an end to our hostilities between the people of God. Brothers and sisters, what God has done to bring us near to Christ should make granting and seeking forgiveness something that we are doing regularly. When Jesus hung on the cross, all hostility was broken between God and his people and their hostilities with one another. His flesh was being torn as the curtain that hung in the temple was ripped into from top to bottom. And so there was peace with God and with man. Do you think that way? What is your attitude toward other believers? He even goes on in verse 15 to show us how that reconciliation takes place. How the hostilities between Jews and Gentiles should be eliminated. Do you remember the ceremonial law given to the Jews in the Old Testament? It declared that certain things were clean while others were unclean. Certain foods defiled you while others could be enjoyed. Or if you you touch certain things like a dead body, you became ceremonially impure. You had to go through a very complicated purifying process before you could re-enter into society. Certain days were holy while others were not all that important. There were sacrifices and rituals and garments and processions and feast days and thousands of other laws to be observed all the time. And the Jews could not live a single day without thinking about all of that. And that ceremonial law was a source of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews considered the Gentiles unclean because they weren't doing any of this. 
The Gentiles saw the Jews as arrogant because they didn't do this out of a love for God. They did it out of a sense of duty and looked down on those who didn't. In so many ways, the ceremonial law was this cause of hostility and tension and bitterness. It was a divider, hence the wall of hostility. But why did God give all that in the first place? He gave all of that to prepare the people for the coming of Christ. Everything in it was full of significance and all of it spoke in some way or another of the Savior that was to come. But when Christ came, there was no longer any need for the ceremonial law. When he died on the cross, all of the previous sacrifices became obsolete because he fulfilled everything in totality. And when he entered into heaven as our great high priest, there was no more need for the Levitical priesthood to continue. And now he cleanses us by his blood and indwells us by his spirit. All of that ceremonial business about defilement and purification is completely and totally redundant and unnecessary. There is no longer any place for it. It serves no further purpose. It ought to be discarded lest we make little of what Christ actually did. By his death... Our Lord Jesus Christ has destroyed the cause of hostility. Salvation is given to both Jew and Gentile alike on the basis of Christ's blood and righteousness alone. So whether it be a Jew or a Gentile who comes to Christ, they're both cleansed by the same blood. They both have the same righteous life reckoned to their account. They are indwelt by the same spirit And their access into God's presence is the same. It depends not on a priesthood, but on Christ. No barrier now exists between us and them. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who made peace between us. One people under one God, saved by one blood, comprising one church. That is what Christ has done. And so the old way of dividing people into two categories is now out of date. It is finished forever. Now, there is still a division of the human race into two, but those, that division is those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. Either you are a child of God or you are not a child of God. Or more frankly, according to Paul earlier in this chapter and in chapter 1, either you're a child of God or you're a child of Satan. So you see, verse 15 helps us to understand what Christ has done in this work of reconciliation between two people. But even when things are as clear as can be, we still are slow to grasp them. And this is, I believe, why Paul wrote verse 16. He doesn't tell us anything new. He's simply driving home what we just learned. Christ did what he did for both Jew and Gentile that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Both are restored to fellowship with God in the same way, by the same cross, by the same broken body, by the same sacrifice. And this being so, there's no reason at all for them to remain separated from each other. The ceremonial law is dead and buried, and so therefore the ill will, the antagonism which once kept Jew and Gentile apart is gone. Remember, we saw that in Galatians when Paul confronted Peter because he was still living as though there was a wall of hostility. 
But if all this is true, why do some Christians still want to keep the ceremonial law alive? There are those who will tell you that it's good to go to Palestine to join with the Jews in celebrating the Feast of the Tabernacles. They want to rebuild the temple. They want to uh, reinstitute the sacrificial system within the temple. And you'll hear the language. They'll speak of Hebrew Christians and Gentile Christians. But since Christ came, there are no more feast days to keep. And the world, much less the church, is no longer divided into Jew and Gentile. There are no Hebrew Christians and there are no Gentile Christians. Christ has created in himself now one man in place of the two, so making peace, having reconciled them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There are just Christians when it comes to the people of God. The church is one body brought near by the blood of Christ. Well, our last observation, very quickly, verses 17 and 18. We are at peace with God through Christ and have access to the Father through the Spirit. Look at verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. Whether you were near to God as one of his people in the nation that he worked through, or you were far away as a Gentile, you have peace with God through Jesus Christ. No matter who you are or what background you have, if you know God, you have the same Father. You go to the same Father as everyone else who is in Jesus Christ. And God is not a God of preference. Now think of this as a parent. If you show preference to one of your children over the other, what do we call that? You, I don't know what you call it. I call it bad parenting. That's wicked. There ought to be equal access no matter what. Now look, our kids might get wrapped up in all kinds of terrible things. They might make bad decisions. They may not walk in wisdom. But we have to give them equal access that we do to all of our other children. And that's what God does with all of his children. We stand side by side at the foot of the cross. There are no pedestals. There are no ladders. We stand on level ground with every other Christian. We're all sinners. We are all in need of Christ. We are all saved by grace. Brothers and sisters, friends, if you are reconciled to God, there is no distinction between you and any other who's in Christ. Hostility is removed. We are indwelt by the very same Spirit of God. And when you're filled with the Spirit, you have a very primary important concern. And Paul's going to deal with this later in Ephesians chapter 4, and that concern is unity. You don't want to have hostility. You, You don't want division when you have the Spirit. You don't want to be at odds with others. Because you've been given a spirit of God, which is a spirit of reconciliation. It is a spirit of peace. So if you aren't able to go to others and say, I messed up, will you please forgive me? If you can't do that, there's something terribly wrong. If you can't see that there's ever a time to ask your friend or your neighbor or your spouse or your child for forgiveness, there's a big problem. 
There's a defect in your walk because you've been given a spirit of reconciliation that you live at peace with others, not at enmity. And this is a very important point moving forward in this letter because Paul has a very strong concern for the unity of the church. Now, remember last week we said that those who are in Christ are God's workmanship. We are God's works of art, his prized paintings, his his beautiful sculptures. All of our brothers and sisters in Christ are being shown in the very same art gallery as we are, trophies of God's grace. So what do you do with that? You're at peace with God through Christ. You have access to God through Christ. You are filled with the spirit of peace and reconciliation through Christ. How does that change you? How does that affect how you interact with others in your home and in your church and in your community and with other Christians that you know and encounter? If you remember that you have been brought near when you were once far off, you you won't have a spirit of enmity or hostility, but you will lovingly and patiently seek to live at peace with other brothers and sisters at every possible turn for the glory of God, for the advancement of his church in the world that the gates of hell might not prevail against it. That's what God wants of his church and among his people and what he has accomplished in Jesus Christ.